broken promises and promises that can never be kept are nothing new. In one of the most dramatic chapters in Israel's history, God gave them His law on Mount Sinai. And Israel promised twice that they would keep all of it. But before Moses could even descend from the mountain with the divinely inscribed tablets, Israel had broken its promise by worshiping Aaron's golden calf. When Moses saw their idolatry, he was deeply upset, as we can imagine. And he smashed the commandments to pieces at the foot of the mountain, and he ground up the golden calf and had them drink it. Because of Israel's sin, God had every right to wipe them out. But Moses prayed. He prayed for God to be merciful and to spare them. And he did. However, there were serious consequences for breaking the covenant. God's presence would no longer accompany Israel, as God explained. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. And so God's presence withdrew from the people as Moses pitched the tent of meeting where he would talk to God. He he pitched it outside of the camp. During Moses' prayer, he asked that God's presence would go with him and God promised to grant his request. In addition, God promised to show him his glory. So Moses cut two new stone tablets and he went back up the mountain. And as he was there, the Lord came down in a cloud. He he hid Moses in the cleft of a rock and he proclaimed his glory as he passed by, allowing Moses to only see the afterglow of his presence because no one could look on the face of God and live. Moses didn't eat and he didn't drink any water for 40 days. And during the time he was there, he rewrote the words of the covenant. He rewrote the Ten Commandments. And as Moses worshipped, his singular petition was for God's presence. He said, if I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us. Well, God answered his request for the Lord's glorious presence among God's people, but not quite in the way that Moses expected. Moses himself became the mediator of God's presence and glory to Israel. Please read with me as we pick up the account in Exodus. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he'd been talking to God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses, And behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the leaders of the congregation returned to him. And Moses talked with them, 
Afterward, all the people of Israel came near, and he commanded them all that the Lord had spoken with him in Mount Sinai. And when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. Whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would remove the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the people of Israel what he was commanded, the people of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face was shining. And Moses would put the veil over his face again until he went in to speak with him. Well, the text we're going to consider this morning is the Apostle Paul's commentary on this very story in Exodus 32-34. And so I invite you there. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Please turn in your copies of God's Word to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Last week, we considered the first six verses of this chapter, and we saw, as is true in most of this very letter, Paul is defending his ministry. He tells them in verses 1 through 3 that the Corinthians themselves are his letter of recommendation. They are the proof that his ministry is legitimate. He describes himself as a minister of the new covenant. As Moses mediated God's presence under the old covenant, Paul mediates God's presence through his spirit under the new covenant, which was prophesied by Ezekiel in Jeremiah. This new covenant promised a new heart, leading to the internalization of God's word. It promised unbroken fellowship with God. It promised un, an unmediated knowledge of God. And it promised an unconditional forgiveness of sins. Well, as Paul continues in verses 7 through 18, he further describes this new covenant of which he is a minister. And as he does so, we see a call for us today. The call for us today from these verses is this. We must behold the glory of Jesus Christ. We must behold the glory of Jesus Christ. And we must do so for two reasons. First, we must behold the glory of Jesus Christ because He has brought a superior covenant. And second, we must do so because as we do, as we behold the, G the glory of Jesus Christ, we're transformed, we're changed. So first, we, behold, we must behold the glory of Jesus Christ because he has brought a superior covenant. As, he as Paul defends his ministry here, he contrasts the old covenant and the new covenant with three arguments that go from the lesser to the greater. And in each comparison, Paul is giving just a little different shade of meaning to the very same thing. He's saying the old covenant, that was great. That was good. But if that was great, just think how much better the new covenant is. Follow along as I read verses 7 through 11. Now if the ministry of death carved in letters of stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, 
the ministry of righteousness must, must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpassed it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. Paul describes here the Old Covenant as the ministry of death and condemnation. And just briefly, three ways in which the Old Covenant is that very thing, a ministry of death and condemnation. First, because of the way in which it brought sin to light. The law, and when I say Old Covenant, think law, think Ten Commandments. Okay? There, there was a way in which the Ten Commandments, the Old Covenant, brought an awareness of sin. We won't take time to look at Romans 7, but that's exactly what Paul's saying there. He says there that he would not have known what it was to covet if the law had not said, don't covet. The second way in which the law is a ministry of death and condemnation is as we gain an awareness of the law, it incites us to sin even more. I mean, what is one surefire way to, to get your kids to do something? You got it. Thanks, David. David knows. He has a four-year-old, right? Tell them not to do something, and all of a sudden, there's some desire within them. I'm going to have to try that. The law, as it brings an awareness of sin, has a way of inciting sin. And then third, the law is a ministry of sin and death and judgment because it is powerless to change the heart. The law came on letters of stone, which we saw last week in verse 6, kill. The, the law cannot give life because it has no power to do so. And it doesn't come with the ability to obey it. And so it condemns. Announcing the penalty of sin for those who fail. Meyer's words on this are so helpful, and I bring them to your attention again. He says, The law doesn't kill because it is bad, but precisely the opposite. It kills because it is a good thing that brings death when people are bad. The law is not bad. It is just too weak to change bad people. It cannot create what it calls for. It cannot conquer the evil power of the flesh. The problem is not that the law is written. The problem is that it is only written. And since it is powerless to transform the hearers, it can only stand as a witness to their condemnation. So Paul is saying that the ministry of the Old Covenant, the Old Covenant's ministry of sin, of death and condemnation, was glorious. And he's saying, if that was glorious, how much more glorious is the new covenant's ministry of the Spirit and of righteousness? That's the contrast here. Paul's ministry of the Spirit was, Spirit was more glorious than Moses' ministry of death because it allowed others to encounter the glory of God without being destroyed. And it, 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 it leads to life which, as we saw in verse 6, the Spirit brings and the Spirit gives. It is a contrast to condemnation. If, if we think about the opposite of condemnation, we think of acquittal. It is a contrast to condemnation. Righteousness means 
acquittal. So when Israel sinned, Moses could attempt to intercede for their behalf, but, but he couldn't remove their guilt. He was helpless at that. He couldn't remove his own guilt. Moses could not make them righteous. The Spirit ministers righteousness. The Spirit acquits because Christ not only intercedes for the condemned, but His death effectively atones for sins. And His perfect righteousness is credited to all who have received the new covenant blessings. The 18th century hymnist John Beridged summarized, he summarized really succinctly in really well, in poetic fashion, this contrast between the law's ministry of death and condemnation and the new covenant's ministry of the Spirit in righteousness. And here's how he did it. He says, run, John, and work. The law commands. Yet it finds me neither feet nor hands. But sweeter news the gospel brings. It bids me fly and lends me wings. The final comparison here we see between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant is in verse 11. Just look at verse 11 again. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. The Old Covenant's ending. Trent read this in Hebrews 8. But the new covenant has permanence. Now, this doesn't mean that, oh, okay, it's going to take me a lot less time to read through my Bible in a year now. I can just rip out the Old Testament. Okay? That's not what this is saying. What it means is this it means that God no longer forms a people around the law, but around a person Jesus Christ. Galatians 3 states that the law was the guardian that leads us to Christ. Colossians 2.17 says that the law was but a shadow of things to come, but the substance belongs to Jesus. So when the new covenant began with the coming of Christ, everything changed. Radically, radically changed. And so... As verse 10 says, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because the glory that surpassed it. Perhaps this illustration will help. Imagine that you spent a lot of time growing up. In fact, all your life growing up, you spent in a cave. And the only light you had was just a small little two AA battery-powered flashlight. Which was great to have. And you absolutely needed it to avoid running into the stalactites and stalagmites and bats and whatever else was in your cave. But you eventually found the mouth of the cave, and as you came to the mouth of the cave, it's noontime, it's August 3rd, prime time in the summer. And the sun is blazing. And you looked at your flashlight and 
you didn't see any light coming out of it anymore. You didn't turn it off. It was still providing light. But when you came into the far greater light of the sun, your, your flashlight has no glory compared to the sun. None. No glory at all. And all those years in the cave were meant to prepare you for the sun. You thought this light is great. It's good. But it seems like there's got to be something brighter. It's, it's doing the job, but it's kind of puny. And then you walk outside, and you see the sun, and you say, whoa, that is glorious. So we must behold the glory of Christ because through the work of God's Spirit, He has brought a superior covenant. I wonder this morning whether or not you see the greater glory of the new covenant. Have you experienced this ministry of righteousness and life from God's Spirit? I would venture to guess, and I think it's pretty safe to say that you're well aware of the ministry of death and condemnation that comes from the old covenant. I mean, after all, have you been able to keep all of the Ten Commandments? Can you sense in the depths of your heart your utter inability to obey God's law? I was talking last week with a guy who, who told me that he had not violated any of the Ten Commandments. So we started to go through them, and we got to number three. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Without hesitation, he said, oh yes, I have done that. Uh, but, but, it's, but it's really minor. That's really minor. The problem is that God demands 100% perfection. God does not grade on a curve. If it were possible, and it's not, but if it were possible to score a 99%, that is still not a passing grade. It's going to look really good compared to the guy who's scoring an 85, 70, Oh, it'll look way better than the guy who's batting 500. But according to God's standard, it's a fail. And because of our inability to keep God's law, we are deserving of the penalty for our sin, death, and eternal separation from God. But there's good news. There's good news. That although God's law declares a curse, Upon all who break it, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming the curse for us. For it is written, Curse is everyone who's hanged on a tree, so that in Christ we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. So, so Christ bore the curse of death for breaking God's law. And the new covenant promise of life in righteousness can be yours if you will be, but repent of your law-breaking 
and your law-making and trust in Jesus Christ's death on the cross in victorious resurrection. See, every, other, every religion in the universe other than Christianity tells us what we must do. It tells us what we must do in order to have a relationship with God. External regulations, law, here's the list. All of that, the religion of death. Blaise Pascal, the 17th century French scientist and mathematician, insightfully observed that because of this, all these religions lead to either pride or despair. If we happen to meet the requirements, look at me. It leads to pride. And when we fail, which is most of the time, we feel guilt and despair. But Pascal went on to say that Christianity alone has the ability to cure these twin vices, not by using one to expel the other, but by expelling them both through the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, the gospel of grace shows us that we can't keep the law, which destroys our pride. And it shows us a Savior who has kept the law perfectly so we don't have to. And that destroys our despair. So I would, I would just call on you this morning to turn to Jesus. Turn to Jesus who has provided a more glorious covenant and find a new heart. Find in Jesus a restored relationship with God and find in Jesus unconditional, total, complete forgiveness of sin. So we must behold the glory of Jesus Christ first because he's brought us a superior covenant. Second, we must behold the glory of Jesus because as we do, we're transformed. Pick up with me at verse 12. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Not like Moses who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So after reflecting on the superiority of the new covenant, Paul can be bold where Moses had to veil himself. Precisely because Paul can expect that instead of destruction, those whose hearts have been changed will be transformed by their encounter with the glory of God in the face of Christ. There's a ton of discussion about why Moses wore the veil. Um, 
many say it's because he wanted to hide the fact that the glory of the Lord was fading. I think more likely, that may be true, uh, certainly, but I think more likely is that he, he wore the veil to protect the people from the dire consequences if they gazed upon the glory of God. So wearing the veil was Moses' way of protecting the stiff-necked people from the death-dealing judgment of the glory of God against sinners that is decreed in the Old Covenant. Haithman says that like the fence around the bottom of Mount Sinai, the veil of Moses makes it possible for the glory of God to be in the midst of the people without destroying them. Israel here in these verses does not suffer from an intellectual deficiency. They could recite by memory most of the law. So so the problem wasn't not smart enough. What they suffered from was a moral deficiency. The veil stands for this hardened condition that prevents those who may love, treasure, defend, and diligently study the glory of the law. It it prevents those people from seeing, hearing, understanding, and believing the glory of God in the new covenant. For those who have seen the glory of Christ in the new covenant, as for Moses, the veil has been removed from their heart and mind. And as a result, they've had their heart of stone replaced with a heart of flesh by the Spirit of God. Verse 17 is not supporting the Trinitarian heresy of modalism, which fails to distinguish between the persons of the Trinity. Rather, Lord in verse 17, and I think in verse 18 as well, most likely refers to Yahweh. Yahweh, the God in the Old Testament, and and could be translated Something like this, now the Lord of whom this passage speaks is the Spirit. So so what's happening here is Paul is making it abundantly clear that Moses' experience of Yahweh in the tent of meeting is equivalent to the current experience of the Spirit in Paul's ministry. So those who are presently living under the new covenant in Christ are in direct continuity with the revelation of God in the Old Testament. This freedom that Paul mentions here in verse 17, this freedom that comes from the Spirit, is not freedom to just do whatever we may feel like. I I, I was talking about this. Jolene and I, one night this past week, the four of us took a walk down to Cub. We needed to get some ice cream. And um, on the way back, I was talking about this verse and where the Spirit of the Lord, there is freedom. And Jolene immediately remembered a, a chorus that, that she would sing in high school. She went to Christian high school and she started singing this chorus where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And she talked about how what she remembered from that song and the meaning of it, we could say that she got from that song alone, was that the freedom meant you could throw your hands up, you could dance in your seat, you could pretty much do whatever you wanted with your body during that chorus. So where the freedom of the Lord is, or where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom to just, that's kind of what she remembered, and people can think that that's what this means, freedom to 
just do whatever he wants. That's not what Paul's saying. This freedom from the veil and freedom, this freedom, okay, this freedom Paul's talking about is freedom from the veil and freedom to behold God's glory that only comes when one turns to the Lord. So we could say it this way. We are set free to see. We're set free to see. So just thinking on this whole veil thing. I wonder what you think the veil, why do you think the veil remains to this day over the hearts of so many? What is it that prevents Israel from turning to the Lord? Oh, one author helpfully points us an answer, and he points us to the Apostle Paul in his life before he was struck by the glory of Jesus Christ. Before his veil was lifted, Paul was full of pride. He was strongly confident in his own merit. He kept the law as zealous as you possibly could. This was his righteousness which made him feel superior. He was self-absorbed. He, he was so much self-absorbed that he, he couldn't see the glory of God in Christ and even sought to destroy it. So in the words of Savage, those who are consumed with their own glory, with pride and boasting, will miss the glory of God revealed in Christ. For it is a peculiar sort of glory, one that radiates with the humility of the cross. Is your heart veiled from seeing the glory of Christ? The answer lies in whether or not you've turned to the Lord in repentance and faith, for that is the only way the veil is removed. If that's you, pray for God's Spirit to set you free so you can see. And turn to the Lord. Turn to the Lord that you may see His glory. And when one does... When the veil is removed, you'll be transformed. You'll be transformed. Look again with me at verse 18. And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So the glory of Yahweh, the glory of the Lord that we have been given the ability to see is Jesus Christ. That's where we see the glory of God. On Mount Sinai, you remember, mentioned it briefly as we started. In Mount Sinai, on Mount Sinai, God told Moses, you can't see my face. The Apostle John, I think, picked up on that. And in chapter 1, verse 18, John says, No one has ever seen God, but Jesus has made him known. It's as if John is saying, Do you want to see God? Nobody's ever seen him and lived. But, but, but do you want to see God? Do you want to see his glory? John's saying, Look at Christ. That's where it is. Look. At Christ. Christ is the image of God, and we have the privilege, as 
Paul states just a few verses later in chapter 4 and verse 6, we have the privilege to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So by beholding Christ, we're progressively transformed to look more and more like Christ. To paraphrase Meyer, the glory of the new covenant does not break into condemnation, but transformation. Many have said it this way, perhaps you've heard this, that we become what we behold. We become what we behold. A good example of this is found in the story about two farm boys from Kansas that both ended up joining the Navy. Farm boys from Kansas joining the Navy. Psychologists are intrigued by this sort of thing and love to study it. Why on earth would two brothers from a false a small farming town in America, so far from any ocean, choose to spend a life at sea. So the psychologists who are interested came to the farm town, and they interviewed the farmer and the people in the community trying to figure out, why did these guys do this? At the end of the day, they didn't have answers. They're stumped. And they decided to spend a night on the farm. We're going to stay overnight. Maybe we'll catch something and get some answers. And the farmer said that they could sleep in the boy's old room, the room that they shared as they were growing up. So in the morning, one of them woke up and discovered the answer to his question. He called the farmer in and he pointed to the painting on the wall of a sailboat out at sea. And the psychologist asked, this picture on the wall, how long has that been up? How long has that been there? And the farmer said, well, if I remember correctly, their Aunt Margaret got it for us and we put it up right before these boys were born. So the psychologist said, let me get this straight. This painting was the first thing the boys saw every morning and the last thing they saw every night? I think we've solved the riddle. We become what we behold. So, quick little aside, kids. Be really careful about thinking your parents are lame because you're going to become like them. All right? And we hope in all the good ways. This transformation that Paul's talking about here, we could use another word. This is a theological category we talk about often of sanctification. Okay, that's what this is. We could just choose one word that defines it, both transformation and sanctification, and we'll just use the word Christ-likeness. Right? This is Christ-likeness. And there's a ton here in this verse worth considering. I could spend a whole morning just in this verse. But I just would like to make three brief points. Three points here, things to think about from verse 18 about this transformation. First, transformation is certain. Transformation is certain. 
we all are being transformed, right? It doesn't say we might be transformed. It doesn't say some of us are being transformed. No, everyone who's been given a new heart and life from the Spirit, everyone whose veil has been lifted through turning to Christ is being transformed. This is not potential. This is certain. Paul writes in Romans 8, 29 through 30, saying that we were predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ. And one day we will be glorified, totally like Christ. What hope this brings. Just think briefly, Christian, the hope that this brings, no matter how much you may be struggling with sin, no matter how dimly you may see the reflection of Christ now, Transformation is certain. Transformation is certain. Second, transformation is the Spirit's work. You see that there at the end of verse 18. This comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. The Spirit's main work is to point to the glory of Jesus and to remake people so that they look more like Jesus. Okay, that's what the Spirit does. His work is not to make us healthy. It's not to make us rich. It's not even to make us happy. As one author put it, his work is not to operate on our career or on our cancer, but on our heart. So the Spirit's primary task is to point us to Jesus and to glorify Him by making us look more like Him. This, of course, does not mean that we oh, it's the Spirit's work. He's the one doing it. I'm just going to sit back and not do anything. No, we work out our salvation We engage in the spiritual disciplines, the means of grace, but it's the Spirit's work. It's not our work that produces change. Third, this transformation is progressive. It's progressive. We see here that this transformation is happening from one degree of glory to another. This transformation doesn't happen all at once. It doesn't happen overnight, and it doesn't always occur at the same pace, intensity, or duration for everybody. So we've got to take the long view. Are you more like Christ today than you were August 3rd, 2013? More like Christ today than three years ago? Five, ten, fifteen years ago? You ought to see progress in the Spirit's work of transformation. David Pallison describes the pattern of our life and growth like a yo-yo. Up and down, up and down. Ever feel that way? It's kind of depressing, isn't it? But he continues and says the pattern of our life and growth is like a yo-yo in the hands of a man walking up a flight of stairs. So often we're, we're very aware, we're acutely aware of the yo-yo feeling. The ups and downs of our growth and holiness, we sense them. We're so aware of them oftentimes that we miss the larger picture of the progressive transformation that the Spirit is working in us as He shows us Christ. It happens in degrees. So don't be overly discouraged by the slowness. 
The key isn't so much where you are on the staircase of Christ's likeness as your progress. Your progress. C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity said that one of the objections to Christianity that some have is that they see a Christian and they see a non-Christian and the non-Christian is a lot nicer than the Christian. And Lewis's answer was basically, you should have seen how, you, how mean he used to be. And because we're all, we all begin this divine process of transformation at different times and in the midst of different circumstances and backgrounds, don't waste time comparing yourself to others. That's not helpful. Where are my toes pointed? Am I making progress? Am I being transformed from one degree of glory to another? In his old age, when he no longer could see to read, the former slave trader, hymn writer John Newton, who, who wrote Amazing Grace, heard someone recite the text, By the grace of God, I am what I am. He remained silent for a short time, and then, as if talking to himself, Newton said, I'm not what I ought to be. I'm not what I wish to be. I am not what I hope to be. Yet I can truly say, I am not what I once was. Is your life being transformed? Is your life progressively looking more and more like Jesus? Is moving to the next degree of glory something desire? You desire. Do you want this? Do you want to grow? If not, it is very well, it very well may be because you have a heart of stone that is veiled and you haven't yet seen the glory of God in the face of Christ. But as we take the long look and see evidences in our life that yes, Yes, I'm being changed. I'm being transformed. We've got to remind ourselves that the greatest need in our life is to gaze upon the glory of God in the face of Christ. That's our greatest need. This is how we're going to change. There are no miracle cures. We love them, don't we? Give it to me now, quick, and all at once. We love, there aren't any miracle cures. There's no quick fixes here. Our main problem is not that we don't have time, that we don't have the resources, that there's too many annoying people in our lives. Okay, that's not our problem. Our main problem is that we don't see enough of the glory of God in the face of Christ. So if you want to be more forgiving, look to Jesus on the cross. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. If you want to be more loving, Look to Jesus who ate with sinners and welcomed repentant tax collectors and prostitutes into the kingdom. If you want to be strong in the midst of suffering, look at Jesus who when reviled did not revile and when he had the opportunity to pass on suffering, he said to his father, not my will, but yours be done. If you want to grow in mercy, look on Jesus who reinstated Peter after he denied him three times. 
you want to be more generous, look at Jesus who gave up everything for your salvation. In the words of DeYoung, there is no growing without gazing and there is no becoming without beholding. So we must behold the glory of Christ first because he brings a superior covenant, one that leads to life rather than death, one that leads to righteousness rather than judgment, and one that doesn't go away. It will last for all eternity. And we must behold the glory of Christ because as we do, we are transformed by God's Spirit into more and more of the image of Jesus Christ. So Father, we thank you for the greater glory of the new covenant. This is your grace. Your grace has given us a new heart and lifted the veil through Christ. For all of those whose hearts are still hard and minds are still veiled, show them, Father, through your Spirit. Show them the glory of Christ that they may turn to the Lord and have new life. And may we, may we as your people, continue to be transformed as your Spirit points us to Christ. May we continue to behold Christ and become more and more like him. I pray, Father, through your Spirit, that you would help us to discern the things in our lives that we may be watching, places we may be going, things we may be doing, even good things that are keeping us from beholding Christ as we should. And as we think on this and evaluate this, Father, give us the grace to make changes that ought to be made. Father, we acknowledge and realize that this, this is a community project. And, and so as a church, together, corporately, help us to help each other see your work of transformation in our lives. And may we regularly help each other see Christ. Even today as we interact at the picnic, may we be pointing each other to Christ in your work of grace in our lives. We desire, Father, to be individuals in a church that looks like Jesus. So continue to help us see Christ and make us more and more like him for your glory. It's in the name of Christ we ask all these things. Amen.